know that these patients have exceedingly, exceedingly high mortality. These are some of the most complex patients that we're going to deal with. This liver affects brain, heart, pulmonary system, as well as kidneys. Really, really complex patients. Gentlemen, an incredibly sick presentation. I'm worried about acute coronary syndrome. Just bad luck. Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you're listening to our podcast this month. So excited to bring you an incredibly challenging case that I had come through our emergency department just a few days ago, and it really serves as the basis for this discussion. Guys, before we jump into the case and talk about our educational content this month, I do want to take a moment and see how you're doing. Peter, how are things in New Orleans? Well, we're incredibly fortunate, Mike. Thank you, guys. We've been dodging hurricanes on either side of us and getting through it. I'm sorry for those people who didn't have the luxury of dodging them, so it makes it tough. Certainly a lot of weather and natural disasters hitting the Gulf of Mexico and all along the Texas, Louisiana, Florida coastline just continuing to get battered by a variety of hurricanes and tropical storms. So we definitely are thinking of all of you down there. Rob, how are things out west on another natural disaster front? Yeah, the, the wildfires seem to be tempering a little bit. They're not quite as extensive as before, and the air has finally cleared up in northern California. So happy to hear that. John, how are things north of Baltimore and Philly? Well, I think I can be happy with how things are going here. I do not have to contend with any natural disasters in Philadelphia. All right. Well, things are pretty good in Baltimore. And I think on the COVID front, we've hit some of our lowest numbers since the onset of the pandemic. We're down to less than 100 patients hospitalized across our entire Maryland system, which is the lowest it's been probably since mid-March. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that we continue to trend in positive direction. And hopefully all of you are seeing a little bit of a decrease in terms of your COVID numbers. Well, for this, we're not going to talk about COVID. However, this particular patient presented with COVID-like symptoms. So guys, I'm going to present this case as it unfolded and ask what you would do in terms of this person coming into your emergency department, some key things that you would start to think about. And this patient came in about a week ago, and I was working one of the shifts with our medical director and actually it was one of those shifts where we did not have residents so it was just those of us as faculty seeing and taking care of patients and shortly after sign out our triage nurse came up to me and said you know dr winters i just put this guy in room one and his triage blood pressure was not so good it was 70 over 40 and he was pretty tachycardic in the 150s 160s he's satting okay but it doesn't look so good so maybe you, know, you think you could go in there and check him out and of course, I hopped right up, went into the room, and the first thing that I noticed when I walked into the room is just to the degree of tachypnea this particular person had. And he's 40 years old. He's got no past medical history. And the history that I was able to elicit from him is that he had had three days of kind of sweats and chills that began earlier in the week. That was followed by muscle aches. So he's had intense myalgias, arthralgias. He's had a little bit of nausea, vomiting, not so much in the way of diarrhea or constipation or other genitourinary symptoms. But he had developed progressive shortness of breath over the last 24 to 48 hours. And it was really that 
that brought him into the emergency department, this progressive shortness of breath. No chest pain, chest tightness, maybe some vague abdominal discomfort, but didn't really admit to any known COVID-positive contacts, denied changes to smell or taste, but did report those subjective fevers. Now, vital sign-wise, as you recall, his triage vital blood pressure was 70 over 40, but when we repeated in the room, it actually was a little high. He was 170 over 100. He was tacking away. It was irregular rhythm in the 150s to 160s. He was truly breathing, upper 30s, low 40s, but satting 98% on room air, and he did have an elevated temperature of 100.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, just the quick pertinence on his physical exam, his mucous membranes were pretty dry. No JVD. He was very tachypnic, but I actually didn't hear much in the way of breath sounds. I didn't hear rowls, ronchi, no wheezes, but he was using accessory muscles. Cardiovascular was that tachycardic, irregularly irregular rhythm. Belly was unremarkable, fairly soft, non-tender, no rebound, no guarding, no masses, and really nothing on the skin subcutaneous exam, nothing on the extremity exam, and really neurologic exam was fairly non-focal, alert and oriented, able to provide me pretty clear and concise history of present illness. So, John, let me turn to you first. We've got this guy with no medical history. He's got three days of progressive symptoms and clearly markedly abnormal vital signs with probably the most obvious and the most concerning to me was just the degree of tachypnea. So what's going through your head at this point? standing at his bedside. Absolutely. So one of the things I teach the residents all the time, which I actually learned at University of Maryland, is this idea of a quick differential on the patient who is short of breath but has clear breath sounds. This isn't absent breath sounds, it's clear breath sounds. So right off the top of my head, I'm worried about acute coronary syndrome, pericardial tamponade, pulmonary embolism, and occasionally you'll catch an occult bleed or symptomatic anemia, but the one that's always forgotten is severe metabolic acidosis. So in my mind, in addition to starting to think of the diagnostic tests that I'll want to have ordered, I'll ask for at least an initial blood gas on this patient. A VBG is just fine. And certainly we'll have someone or I will walk over to grab the ultrasound to start performing a rush exam on this patient who's clearly in clinical shock. Outstanding point. So we did bring the ultrasound in. I took a quick look at his cardiac exam and it was tachycardic, but no pericardial effusion. Fairly hyperdynamic in terms of the overall ejection fraction, but looked to be in perhaps new onset AFib from the monitor. Still hadn't gotten an EKG yet, but we did do a quick cardiac POCUS. And in terms of his evaluation, I'm hearing a few days of subjective fevers, chills, myalgias, the nausea, the vomiting, the shortness of breath, and his abnormal vital signs inclusive of his fever, I'm starting to think, well, this, this certainly could be COVID. But with that, we went ahead and pulled the trigger on our sepsis order set, which included the usual labs. So we're talking CBC, CMP, blood cultures, VBG, lactate, the usual chest x-ray, urinalysis, all that gets sent off. Started him on some fluid resuscitation. And Peter, within, I'd say, 30 to 45 minutes, they overheaded me for the lab with a critical value. And actually, it was two values. It was a pH of 6.88. And his lactate actually couldn't be measured. They simply reported it out as greater than 17. So does that change anything when your differential start to make you think of different things on the differential, perhaps? additional information that you'd want to know? Well, 
absolutely. So number one, he suddenly bumps up my list. If I didn't think he was acutely ill and very sick before, he's now 10 plus sick. And so the things that I would think about, quick AccuCheck to make sure that we're not dealing with DKA. And then the other thing is any ingestions, any social history, whether we're talking about vaping or whether we're talking about illicits or whether we're talking about aspirin or alcohols at all. And I would kind of think about those things because as John brought up, this severe metabolic acidosis from a differential standpoint needs to be addressed. Absolutely. Great questions. And we did ask him that. So in terms of glucose, a finger stick was checked. It was 110. So we weren't really in the DKA box. We asked him about anything over the counter. So the only thing he had taken was just occasionally over the past three days taken some NSAID therapy. But when we pinned him down on how much he was taking, it really didn't seem like any type of toxic amount. Denied acetaminophen. He denied any illicit substance use. No vaping. He did admit to an occasional drink, but certainly was not in an alcoholic ketoacidosis type of box or significant other ingestions. So that's where we were. Now, additional labs started to come back within the next you know, 30 to 45 minutes. He clearly had what we presumed to be acute kidney injury. No prior medical history. His BUN was about 50, creatinine 6, but his potassium was 4.5, so not hyperkalemic. And then started to get additional labs that kind of clued us in, hey, this is probably what we're dealing with. And the first clue of that was on a CMP, his total billy returned at 13. And just going back to the bedside to talk to him more, what initially I had misinterpreted as kind of just muddy type sclera, the closer I got, it seemed to be a little bit more scleral icterus. And after looking at that T billy, it wasn't far after that that his transaminases came back in the thousands. His AST was six or 7,000, his ALT was 10,000, and then some markers of hepatic synthetic function also came back markedly abnormal. So his INR was 9.5. So very early in his presentation, probably within the first two hours, it was starting to become much more clear that we were dealing with someone with actually acute and potentially fulminant hepatic failure with really no past medical history. And it was a fascinating case and a very challenging case in terms of his resuscitation. And that's what we're going to talk about during this podcast. And as many podcasts we've done throughout the years, luck would have it that a relatively recent publication in critical care medicine this year on the management of patients with acute and acute on chronic liver failure was published. This was a few months ago, actually titled Guidelines for the Management of Adult Acute and Acute on Chronic Liver Failure in the ICU, Cardiovascular Endocrine, Hematologic Pulmonary, and Renal Considerations. So this was an updated guideline on a lot of those aspects of the critical care management of patients with acute liver failure. It's not that we see this, we don't see this too, too often, especially initially presenting through the emergency department. Now, we may get these in transfer to the intensive care unit, but it's very infrequent, at least in my experience, to have someone in front of you truly with acute liver failure. And, and we know that these patients have exceedingly, exceedingly high mortality. Now, this particular article was really written as a guide for not only critical care physicians, but emergency physicians, any acute care practitioner who is working in the ICU or in the ED and potentially caring for critically ill patients who present with acute liver failure. And when we talk about acute liver failure, what we're really 
talking about and what the article defines is this is someone who has the occurrence of encephalopathy along with hepatic synthetic dysfunction within 26 weeks of the first onset of liver disease and someone really who has no preceding chronic liver disease. Now, 26 weeks seems like a long time. This particular patient really had only had symptoms for days before he presented with fulminant hepatic failure. And while he didn't have evidence of encephalopathy at the time of his ED presentation, over the course of several hours during his early hospital stay, he did start to develop altered mental status, had an ammonia level of 250 while we were continuing to resuscitate him. So with that, let me turn to you guys. Rob, I'm going to start with you first. The guidelines go over and probably emphasize most cardiovascular resuscitation in terms of the patient with acute liver failure from type of fluid, blood pressure targets, what should we be monitoring if they need pressors, what do we go to first? So perhaps you can take us through the key pearls in terms of the cardiovascular management of patients with acute liver failure. So thanks, Mike. Acute liver failure is basically a hyperdynamic state resulting in increased cardiac output and decreased or low normal blood pressures. And the primary mechanism behind this hyperdynamic state is peripheral and splanchnic vasodilatation. So again, you have a high output, low SVR resistance type state. So in terms of fluid resuscitation, there are basically no large randomized trials comparing different fluids in patients with acute liver failure. But recommendations are pretty clear against using agents like gelatin or hydroxyethyl starch instead of crystalloids. In general, albumin is the resuscitation fluid of choice in patients with acute liver failure. And this is usually recommended over crystalloids, especially when the serum albumin is low, like lower than three grams per deciliter. Albumin can have extra properties like antioxidant effects, immunoregulatory effects, and endothelial regulatory functions that can improve the maldistribution state in acute liver failure. And again, there are no real trials of this, but a lot of the literatures and recommendations are based on extrapolation from other studies in severe sepsis and septic shock. With regards to blood pressure targets, the precise MAP goal in patients with liver, with liver failure is uncertain. Because it's a hyperdynamic vasodilatory state in which you may have lower blood pressures, it's probably better to accept a lower MAP, maybe around 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury, as long as you're watching for perfusion, which is really your target instead of blood pressure targets. Again, there's not a lot of literature in terms of MAPs, and some of this is based on sepsis literature. With regards to monitoring, the blood pressure cuff may be inaccurate in these cases. So arterial catheters or A-lines are recommended for blood pressure monitoring. And these are safe in patients with acute liver failure. Some people may worry about bleeding when placing an A-line, but as long as you're using ultrasound and other measures to identify the artery, it still should be fine. Moving on to vasopressors, the choice of first-line vasopressor agent, there are not a lot of trials looking at this in acute liver failure, but nevertheless, from indirect evidence, norepinephrine remains the first-line vasopressor as it is with sepsis. And as discussed, 
before this shock state is manifest by a maldistribution and sort of vasodilatory state. So norepinephrine's vasoconstriction and effects on the heart can improve this vasodilatation. Epinephrine has been noted to cause more splanchnic vasoconstriction and increase mesenteric and hepatic ischemia in the setting of acute liver failure. And it can also increase lactate production and make interpretation of your lactate levels more difficult. Some experts also recommend vasopressin, adding low-dose vasopressin to norepinephrine in these patients, just as you would with sepsis. As you're getting into higher doses of norepinephrine, you might consider using vasopressin. And similar to the selection of IV fluids and norepinephrine, there's not a lot of evidence, and this is kind of extrapolated from the sepsis literature. Outstanding, Rob. Thanks so much. Those are incredible pearls in terms of cardiovascular resuscitation. Well, Peter, let me turn to you. This gentleman's lab's markedly abnormal. He's got evidence of hepatic synthetic dysfunction. His INR is way out at 9.5. His hemoglobin returns at 8.2. His platelets are also abnormal in the setting of acute liver failure. So we start talking amongst ourselves you know, should I be giving him FFP? Should I be giving him blood? Should I be giving him platelets? That INR makes me concerned. It's right around 10. What's his bleeding risk? Take us through some hematology pearls in these patients. So these patients are tough to manage, Mike. And when we talk about the bleeding and thrombosis risk, we really should be following these folks, not just with the INR, but with viscoelastic testing. We're talking about TAG and Rotom over INR, platelets and fibrinogen on critically ill patients with acute liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure. So again, you're going to push for the TAG and the Rotom. Individual components often fail to consistently provide a true assessment of overall hemostatic function and their risk for bleeding. The INR really doesn't account for deficiencies of the anticoagulation system, and those may result in a hypercoagulable state that's really not captured by the INR. And so Tagorotum allows for real-time, really global picture of things and a functional evaluation of the altered activity of the pro and anticoagulant pathways. It tends to also identify platelet function, hyperfibrinolysis, and premature clot dissolution. So those are our go-to measures. When we talk about targeting hemoglobin, the suggestion is using a transfusion threshold that we're familiar with before, the 7 milligrams per deciliter for critically ill patients with acute liver failure. So again, the 7 and 21 rule is going to apply here as well. It's theorized that transfusion may actually play a role in worsening thrombosis. So we need to be cognizant of that. So we know that red blood cell transfusion has been shown to be an independent predictor of mortality following liver transplant. So that's something we need to keep in the forefront of our thinking. Endogenous EPO levels are already elevated in patients with cirrhosis and relate to the degree of portal hypertension. And then exogenous EPO induces thrombosis and platelet activity. So that's why we want to avoid that unnecessary transfusion. So bleeding risk for invasive procedures, something to think about. Again, the recommendation here is tag or rotum over INR and platelet or fibrinogen in patients with acute liver failure undergoing any procedures. And that would include EGD. 
So bleeding rates are low for patients with cirrhosis or acute liver failure undergoing paracentesis, and that rate's 0 to 3%, and thoracentesis, about 2%. And then bleeding does not correlate with platelet count or the INR. And so those are our traditional measures. We would grab the INR, look at the platelet count, then you know, make some determinations based on those. We really shouldn't. We should be hanging our hat on TAG and Rotom instead. Outstanding pearls. Now, I will fully admit we did not give this patient blood products to normalize that INR in the emergency department, but something I probably should have sent is those viscoelastic tests, whether it be TAG or Rotem. It's not something I did, but certainly something I will do the next time that I'm confronted with this particular scenario in the ED. Well, John, I'm going to turn to you now. In terms of his ED course, I don't think any of us would be surprised that breathing 40, 42, and probably truly 45 breaths per minute, only someone can only go so long. And this is a super, super high-risk intubation, given that his pH is already less than 7. He's maximally compensated. His CO2 on his BMP or CMP came back less than 5. Very, very high risk for peri-intubation cardiac arrest or peri-intubation cardiovascular collapse. We did manage to get him up to one of our intensive care units in preparation for other therapies that I'll allude to soon, but ended up intubating him once we got him into the ICU. And he did have a rocky peri-intubation course, but did not have a peri-intubation cardiac arrest, thankfully. Now, with him in this setting of acute liver failure, now we need to set the ventilator, think about other therapies, take us through a few pulmonary pearls that these updated guidelines talk about in the management of these patients. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So a couple of things, even leading in, as you said, this is a high-risk intubation, and definitely some things to think about if you are faced with that is some of the strategies which we've talked about before, head-up intubation is definitely something to consider. Even consider RSIing through a non-invasive ventilation to preserve ventilation so that the acidosis doesn't get worse. These certainly are all adjuncts that I would use. And to be honest, I'd even consider early vasoactives on him. As Rob mentioned, how vasodilated these patients can get, even the slightest reduction in endogenous adrenergic tone can lead to cardiovascular compromise. So having some background vasoactives, whether it's norepinephrine or whatever in the background, are really going to be critical in preventing this patient from having an arrest on intubation. But once they are intubated, certainly there's some things that are really important to consider. And I think as we're thinking about the prescription of what we're going to provide to this patient and the respiratory therapist, starting off with some lung protective strategies, you know, I think that as we've learned more about mechanical ventilation, oftentimes we've moved away from necessarily improving just oxygenation and preventing secondary injury. And lung protective or low stretch strategies do apply here. So for any patient in acute liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure, we should use that six to seven cc's per kilo to start of ideal body weight for a tidal volume prescription. Now, there aren't any specific studies with acute liver failure patients, so a lot of 
these recommendations are kind of extrapolized from smaller studies and larger studies on general critically ill patients. Now, PEEP is an interesting one. So positive expiratory pressure, there are some physiologic considerations with our acute liver failure patients. So one of the things you have to be cautious about is trying to maybe avoid using higher PEEP or a higher PEEP strategy that you would see on your ARDSnet card or whatever cognitive aid you use, as opposed to a general lower PEEP strategy. And part of this is you really have to be careful with increasing the intrathoracic pressure because as you do that, as that intrathoracic pressure goes up, they've already likely have a high intra-abdominal pressure from ascites from their liver failure. You can certainly increase the patient's intracranial pressure and reduce their venous return further. And this is important as we're thinking about the neurologic problems that come along with acute liver failure, such as intracranial hypertension and cerebral edema. So similar to the title volume recommendation, there really aren't any specific studies on the ideal PEEP in patients with acute liver failure, but there are some general recommendations based on the understood physiology and studies on larger groups. Now, there are also some important considerations in terms of disease-specific problems you may encounter. So pulmonary hypertension, particularly portopulmonary hypertension, is a well-known and serious pulmonary vascular complication that can result from portal disease, and it's defined as the presence of pulmonary arterial hypertension that evolves over time because of portal hypertension. And it's included in that group one classification of pulmonary hypertension, that PAH classification. So portopulmonary hypertension occurs in anywhere between 5 and 8% of liver transplant candidates. So these are people with pretty advanced disease. And most of these patients are excluded from many of the randomized control trials of pulmonary arterial hypertension. So the application of PAH-specific therapies on these patients is really extrapolated from the broader pulmonary arterial hypertension literature. But with that being said, prostacycline analogs have been shown to improve the hemodynamics in portopulmonary hypertension. And this can be medications such as the endothelin receptor antagonists, which improve hemodynamics and haven't really been found to have any significant toxicity. So I think the ones that were probably most familiar with would be your inhaled epoprostenol. Now, the suggested treatment threshold for patients with portopulmonary hypertension are approved when the pulmonary arterial pressure is greater than 35. Now, this isn't something that you're going to have readily available to you in the emergency department. It's not like we're floating swans anymore, but certainly if there's evidence of RV dilation or RV strain when you're doing your echo, I'd probably consider adding on inhaled pulmonary vasodilator to treat the patient for suspected pulmonary hypertension early on, especially if you're having problems with severe hypoxemia. And that brings us to our next group of patients, which are those severely hypoxemic patients with hepatopulmonary syndrome. So hepatopulmonary syndrome is essentially characterized by the dilatation of the pulmonary precapillary and capillary vessels that result in severe hypoxemia due to VQ mismatch, and later can actually develop into intrapulmonary shunt physiology, which you can, interestingly enough, you can diagnose potentially at the bedside with your bedside ultrasound. So loss of hypoxic Vasoconstriction occurs in about 30% of cirrhotics that leads to loss of pulmonary vascular tone. So this is a localized vasodilation as well as some gravitational changes that develop platypnea and orthodoxia. 
So severe hypoxemia actually occurs in a good amount. So this is anywhere between 5 and 20% of patients with pedopulmonary syndrome early on within the first 24 hours after transplant, and it has a pretty high mortality. And this is just because this hypoxemia is so refractory that it's really difficult to treat. And oftentimes the recommendations are really just supportive care with supplemental O2, and transplant's really the only proven therapy with any long-term benefit. Now, with that being said, especially if you have that patient in front of you who's satin in the 80s despite 100% FiO2, what you can actually do is a quick bubble study. And if you take a 10cc saline syringe and empty out just a little bit, less than a cc, even half or a quarter of a cc, shake it up really well, and you put it into a proximal vein, what you'll notice is if you put your ultrasound over the heart and inject the micro bubbles in, you'll see a filling into the RV, but then within six beats. And so it's not right away. Right away, if you see it in single beat, that's an intracardiac shunt. But if you get five, six beats into that cardiac cycle and you see the LV fill up with micro bubbles, what you've diagnosed is hepatopulmonary syndrome and particularly a intrapulmonary shunt. And that's why your patient's so hypoxic. And you may be able to tolerate a little bit of a lower SAT as a result of that. Now, if this isn't the case, but your patient's hypoxic, you really have to think of some of the other complications that come along with liver failure, which include, I think, the one we're most familiar with, which is ascites. And ascites can exist within the abdomen, but it can also travel up through the diaphragm into the pleural space, and this is a hepatic hydrothorax. So about 5% of patients with cirrhosis will go on to develop hepatic hydrothorax. And the general management is really aimed at reducing the pleural effusion with salt restriction and diarrhea. It's not something that's amenable to chest tubes because they'll just continue to drain. In recurrent effusions, the best study treatments is TIP, so that's to reduce the portal venous pressure with a complete response in about 50 to 60% of patients and maybe about 20% have a partial response. And again, traditionally chest tubes were considered a relative contraindication due to the fear of infection leak as excessive fluids, but occasionally you might consider it temporarily. But again, this is not something that stays in because unless that liver is transplanted or the ascites resolves, the patient's always going to have that fluid in their thoracic space. Infection rates can range anywhere from 0 to 30%. So this is the hepatic hydrothorax that leads to a spontaneous bacterial empyema. Volume and electrolyte losses have been reported, but only in case reports, and approximately 50% of patients do achieve spontaneous pleurodesis. For those that don't achieve pleurodesis on their own, tube thoracoscopy may be considered if there's a contraindication to TIPS. So this is the rare circumstance where TIPS is not indicated, and this is generally used as a bridge to liver transplant. John, that was outstanding. You've covered a lot of ground there from tidal volumes to PEEP. I think that was a key, key pearl in terms of high PEEP, venous return, increasing intracranial pressure, and then some conditions that we're not really familiar with seeing and don't see them that often. So portopulmonary hypertension, hepatopulmonary syndrome, and then hepatic hydrothorax. Great, great pearls in review. Now, the one last area that these guidelines talk about are renal, renal resuscitation, and what I'd bring to light is really hepatorenal syndrome. I think many of us are familiar with hepatorenal syndrome. Recall that that is essentially a distinct form of kidney injury that we see in patients with cirrhosis and ascites, and importantly, it's almost a diagnosis of exclusion. This occurs in the absence of any type of nephrotoxin-induced injury, sepsis, or any type of structural kidney disease. 
And in essence, hepatorenal syndrome is widely considered a form of pre-renal dysfunction that is characterized by severe intrarenal vasoconstriction, while as Rob talked about in the cardiovascular section in the setting of overall global vasodilatation. Recall that hepatorenal syndrome typically is in two types. I do think there's a third, but we commonly talk about just type 1 and type 2. And this gentleman, recall he had a BUN of 50s and a creatinine of 6.0. And that type 1 hepatorenal syndrome is really that acute severe decompensation of acute kidney injury. It's really hard to say whether he had that presenting or if this acute kidney injury, this new kidney injury that we presume he had was in the setting of several other things going on. So with that, as his case unfolded, we were able to get him up to the ICU. We placed additional lines. We started him actually on CRRT for renal support. He did unfortunately have that worsening mental status, was becoming encephalopathic, was intubated successfully, and placed on mechanical ventilation. And yet another shout out to bedside ultrasound. We evaluated his optic nerve diameters, noted that they were increased in size, and he received hyperosmolar therapy as a result of that. And really by the end of the day, when he walked into the emergency department with those symptoms, those abnormal vital signs, before the sunset on that day, he was listed as a status one on our liver transplant list. And when I returned over the weekend, I was happy to see that he was in the operating room having received a donor and he was in the process of receiving an emergent liver transplant. So gentlemen, an incredibly sick presentation presentation, certainly someone that I will remember for quite some time in terms of his presentation. Peter, any thoughts on this particular scenario, acute liver failure, any final pearls? I think the final pearl is understanding that these are some of the most complex patients that we're going to deal with and that this liver affects brain, heart, pulmonary system, as well as kidneys, as well as a hematopoietic system. So we really need to think of these as being very broad patients that are incredibly complicated. And so I think we gave tons of pearls and it's worth reviewing. Great points. John, any final thoughts? No, Mike, these are really, really complex patients. The only thing I think could have went worse in this circumstance is the GI bleed that's ensuing or brewing. One thing I usually think about, and it's not always something I use, but there is some evidence behind it is using empiric N-acetylcysteine or NAC therapy in these patients. He was able to give you a pretty good history, but it seems like there may be benefit even in patients without acetaminophen overdoses in terms of reducing the acute liver injury. Now, in this case, obviously he was pretty far gone, but just something to consider if you have a clinical pharmacist to kind of ping or even your clinical toxicologist, something worth thinking about. But overall, really, really complex patients. And it sounds like you guys really acted swiftly, which is not easy in these, as Peter said, really complex patients. I'm glad you brought up that last point there, John, because even though he denied over-the-counter acetaminophen, as the picture became clear and we were dealing with acute fulminant hepatic failure, we actually did give him N-acetylcysteine. Now, subsequently, the acetaminophen level did return negative, and we did the whole other slew of testing with what would be the etiology of this from rheumatologic causes to autoimmune causes to the infectious serologies. And as it turns out, it was acute hep A infection. Oh, wow. 
unbelievable. You know, the one to two percent of patients or very small percentage of patients that ultimately develop acute hepatic failure or fulminant failure from hep A, it's not something that we see at all. But as I've learned in the recent days, there have been an outbreak or has been an increase in cases of hep A in the Baltimore area. So he just had that bad risk factor that we know our colleague, Dr. Matu, always talks about, and that is just bad luck. I had a case of hep A just last week. Did you? Yeah, fulminant. Fulminant. So it's there, not just for the homeless population. It's there. Unbelievable. Well, sharing similar cases, Peter. But I want to thank both of you. Thank Rob as well for this really great discussion on a very timely document, updated guidelines, and all of the pearls that you all talked about in terms of the various resuscitation aspects. I think this has been very helpful, and I can't thank you enough. If you have any questions for us, any comments, please shoot us an email through the website. Happy to interact with you. Love hearing any feedback you have on the topics we've talked about and also suggestions for things to talk about in upcoming podcasts. That's going to bring us to a close for this CCPEM podcast. So happy you listened in and we will look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.